seat. We're going to continue on here this morning. Just making sure this guy's on. I hope you got into a good conversation. We're all and we all agree on one thing. We're looking forward to spring actually coming. Amen. Amen. See, I knew I could get an amen right off the bat. Hey, good morning, everyone. Special welcome again to those of you who are maybe visiting Mill City or joining us for one of the first few times or just kind of curious and getting to know us. Do let us know who you are. Stop by the connections table. Let us know who you are online. Uh, My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so excited to celebrate Easter with you today. Yes, what an exciting opportunity. We're going to look at the story of Jesus' death, but also his resurrection, and talk about how it's meaningful for every one of us today. But before we do that, will you join me in prayer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you are with us in this space, that we get to celebrate, that you came to this earth, that you lived a life, you, you did a powerful ministry, but you conquered death on our behalf that you went to this cross, but you came back to life. And today we pray, God, that the promise that you are with us, that you offer to us, that your Holy Spirit is here and that your spirit would speak to each one of us, that we would be people who leave today changed because of you and who you are and what you want to say to each one of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, I haven't... I haven't publicly shared this yet until today, but, but J.D. and I made it five years just last month being married. Five years. <clears throat> now, those of you who don't know me are thinking five years is not like that many years, but when you get married in the middle of your life, the fact that you figured out how to get those two lives to go together is just, it's a big deal. So we made it to five years And um, we were talking, we were reminiscing like you do at those anniversaries, and we were talking about our first date, which was just a little over six years ago. And it was a great first date. You know, we actually had a lot in common, and we were talking about places we traveled and different things. And then after a couple more dates, we were this close to putting each other in the friend zone, like real close, both of us. And I think JD even said that at one point, like we might be doing, so, you know, it didn't take long, though, where we overcame the friend zone and we figured out, okay, things are getting serious. It was just a few months. Now, you also sometimes reminisce over a big anniversary, like five years. You say, well, when was it that we started to talk about, you know, like committing our lives to each other? And it turns out, JD and I remember that differently. <laughs> but I'm here, so you're going to hear my version of the story. <laughs> He's in the back, love you. So... Here's what I remember. I remember that we were, we were talking about just like something in the near future. I did not think we were talking about marriage or even anything of the sorts. But in the middle of the conversation, he just stops and he says, you know, I think we can all see where this thing is going. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> Who's we? Who's we all? It's just us here. We all can see where this thing is going. <laughs> this is what happened. I, this is what I remember happening. And so, you know, while that was maybe not the most romantic, it's been better since, while it was maybe not the most romantic way to move from a dating, you know, we're we're just kind of checking things out, to maybe we're talking about lifelong commitment here, while that was maybe not the most romantic moment, do you know what I remember? I remember that my heart started to race a little bit, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Like, this, this is a moment here. If, if, if he's serious, if, if this thing is going where we all think it's going, like, this is... This is a life-changing moment here. While it could be more romantic, it's happening. And I remember thinking at that time, like, this could change my whole life, depending on how I respond to this moment. 
Haven't you noticed in life how many like life-defining moments that there are? We all have them. Sometimes they're exciting ones like that. Other times they're difficult. Um, but just think about the life-defining moments you've had in your life. It could be around relationships. It could be around family. It could be around vocation or maybe location and moving. It, it could be when you got some really tough news, when you got some really great news. But you know what those moments are, right? Those, those moments that change everything. The defining moment, the, the turning point, when everything changes. This is what Easter is all about. Jesus' resurrection was the most defining and world-changing moment in history. Jesus came as a human. God, in the flesh, walked this earth, lived a life as a human, condescending from the throne, as we just sang about. And, and he lived this powerful ministry that we've been talking about through the book of Matthew and just seeing all these things that he has done. He died a criminal's death, but then he rose again. He came back to life, conquering death as the Messiah and as the king. And here at Mill City, we often say, Jesus was a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. And the, and the turn to the cross, this journey, this holy week, we often talk about his death, but his resurrection then was the defining moment, the turning point in history that changes everything. And every one of us gets a chance to respond to this defining moment. Because how we respond will define the rest of our lives. Will we let Jesus reign in our lives as leader and as king? Because if we do, it'll change our reality. As Jesus turns towards the cross in this powerful story, this Holy Week story, you see he's moving towards this reality and all the humans around him are trying to decide how they're going to respond to this defining moment. Like the people who were there who witnessed it firsthand. And it turns out that the people who experienced this, this journey to the cross and the resurrection, they could also not agree to clearly see where this is all going. They, they, they did not. In fact, nobody saw it clearly <laughs> where this thing was going with this Jesus guy, except for Jesus. And the responses were all over the board. Uh, and I recognize the responses in the story in our lives today. I see the same responses. Some people in the story, they clearly have an agenda for Jesus. Some people in the story are, are confused and understandably afraid. And other people in the story are just overcome with devotion to this King Jesus. So look at the story with me, and we're just going to see how, no matter what, no matter how they choose to respond, every single person in the story, no matter how they choose to respond, there's something that they all have in common. And so join me in Matthew chapter 26. You can follow along in a Bible, on the Bible app, but we're going to have it up here on the screen for you as well. And as I read, what I want you to notice is how are the, the sub-characters, Jesus is the main character of the story, and how are all the other characters responding to King Jesus? Um, so here in the story where we're picking it up, Matthew 26, uh, this, what has just happened is Jesus has been sharing his heart with his disciples, and we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant, why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money could have been given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, 
Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Jesus, in this story, is anointed as king. And, and we see this response, right? Who responds with devotion? Who responds with confusion? Who responds with an agenda for Jesus? Well, first of all, we see right away that the person that responds with devotion in this part of the story is this woman, right, who comes, some scholars would say that this alabaster jar could have been worth uh, a year's wages with this expensive oil and perfume. At the time, it could have been worth a, king, a, a year's wages, a king, when they're becoming a leader and coming to the throne, they're anointed as leader. But at that time, a body would also be anointed with oil for burial. And this woman is doing both. She comes with this overflow of devotion in her heart for King Jesus, and she pours this oil on his head. The king anointed, but a body also prepared for burial. Who responds then with confusion? Well, the disciples do, right? And if we read through the story, it's not new. The, the disciples get confused, and I find that comforting, okay? Because sometimes I feel confused. And they're looking at this situation, and they're thinking, this is worth so much. Think of all the good we could do with that. And Jesus is just letting this woman waste it. And Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy when he's saying, the poor will always be with you. And he's not doing that to say that caring for the poor doesn't matter. That was a clear way to honor God in the Jewish community. You would do that to honor and worship God, to care and love the poor. But, but what he's trying to say is like, I've been trying to tell you what's going to happen to me. He had just said it. We all read it. He had just said to them what was going to happen. And they were getting their, their priorities confused. And he's trying to help them understand this precious moment that they're in. Okay, so then who has an agenda in the story? Well, this is pretty easy. Right off the bat, we see that the Jewish religious leaders, probably not all of them, but the most powerful leaders have an agenda. Jesus is threatening their power. And oftentimes when people are threatened in their power and they have a lot of it, we see that they begin to sabotage somebody if they think they're going to take that power. And that's what you see happen, right? They start to scheme of how to take Jesus' life. But who else in the story has an agenda? heartbreakingly, Jesus' friend and his disciple Judas. Judas has paid 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus and to hand him over to these schemers. Now, now Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, so the Jewish audience had awareness that we maybe don't have. And when they heard 30 pieces of silver in their context, they would have known that price. They had heard that price before. Because in the ancient Hebrew writings and context, that was what someone would pay for the price of a slave. And so just think of this juxtaposition, just minutes apart, where this woman comes in and she lavishes this, this beautiful oil on top of Jesus' head that's worth a year's wages and Jesus getting paid the slave price to hand Jesus over to die. I mean, we're talking about the difference between like, like $50,000 or more worth in this perfume and like $150 maybe to give your friend over, sold like a slave. The devoted, the confused, and those with an agenda. 
Jesus said this woman would be remembered forever for what she had done. Turns out Judas would be too. King Jesus went to his death on the cross being mocked as the king of the Jews. That's what the sign said above his head. It wasn't serious. It was to mock him. They gave him a fake crown and a fake scepter. But the truth was, he was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords. He was the most powerful leader that ever walked the earth and ever has since then. And he chose to lay all that down to rescue the world. After Jesus' death, we see another just incredible act of devotion in the Matthew account. And that is this man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's a wealthy man, it says, and we know previously he had held a prominent position in the Sanhedrin, the same Jewish court that was scheming to kill Jesus. He used to sit on that court as a member of that power, and he uses his privilege and his power and his clout to get an audience with Pilate, the governor. And he gets that audience, and he says he wants to take Jesus' body so that he can bury him properly. And Pilate gives Jesus' body over to him. It's so hard to express how much was on the line for Joseph in this moment. I mean, his former friends had just had Jesus murdered. Think about that. And here he is asking for his body to be buried in this unused tomb. I mean, by doing that, he's putting his entire reputation on the line, probably putting his wealth on the line. But Joseph did this incredible act of devotion. And here's why it's so important. Because this ensured that Jesus was buried as a king. Because a king was buried, a king of Israel would never be buried in a tomb that has already been used. An unused tomb was the correct place for a king to be buried. Jesus was anointed as king. He was buried as a king. But finally, in the story, Jesus is risen and he returns as a victorious king. He returns as a victorious king. So listen to the exciting account as Matthew describes it. Listen to what it says in verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not there. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings! I would have been freaked out. They came to him, they clasped his feet and worshipped him, and then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, for there they will see me. Here in the story, we see yet again the confused, right? You see that, that the guards are left confused and afraid, literally like dead men, they're scared stiff, right? And we have also heard uh, no mention of a lot of the disciples that, that when Jesus was arrested, they fled, they're confused, they're afraid, they're hiding somewhere. Why? Because they're afraid they're the next ones to lose their life. So they're not here in the story, but the women are still there. <laughs> the Marys are still there. That's how I call them, the Marys. Throughout the story, time and time again, we see the Marys are still there. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and would you know there's a third Mary? I'm serious. Look in John chapter 19. There's three Marys. Mary, the wife of Clepas. That's a lot of Marys. It's kind of like Stephanie's in the 80s. Like, there's just a lot of us, and you have to go by, like, Steph and Steffi and Stephanie. It's a lot. 
Like, we're a lot. We bring a lot. You know? But you can never have too many Stephanies, and you can never have too many Marys. Amen? That was strong. I appreciate that. Thank you. The women were there. Understand that the women were a part of the 72. When the scripture refers to the disciples, these include these women. When it's the 12, it's about these specific men. But the 12 are nowhere in sight, but the Marys are there. And if you look at the account in Matthew of Jesus last week, it, Matthew points out time and time again, Marys were there, the Marys were there, the women were there, the women were there. They're part of Jesus' ministry. These women have some serious staying power. They stay through the crucifixion. They follow to the burial. They watch Joseph wrap Jesus in these linens, these burial clothes. And then there they are, back on dawn on Sunday. Can you imagine Matthew? I mean, he's the one taking this account. Can you imagine him trying to get the story from them just to make sure he gets it right? Like, okay, so tell me what happened again. There was an earthquake. And they're like, yes, it was an earthquake. The stone moved. And the angel, tell me what the angels looked like. They looked like lightning. Okay, lightning. And then tell me what happened. What, 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 what did the guards do? The guards, like fell over like dead men. It was crazy. And, and Matthew's writing this all down. And then he says, what did the angels say? And they said, Jesus is alive. He is risen. Go see for yourself. And then we went in there and we saw those same linens that Joseph used to wrap his body. But he wasn't there. And then those women, while they're, it says, afraid but filled with joy, I feel that, right? They're, both can happen at the same time. They ran to tell the disciples wherever the disciples had been hiding. And it's so significant isn't it that they were the first ones to get to share this good news? It's so significant because they had stayed with Jesus. And they got to share this good news of the resurrection. And you notice in Jesus' ministry that he is constantly turning on its head the way that society valued different groups of people. Women, children, the least of these, the sick. Jesus is constantly placing them in a place of honor, and here he's doing it again. The people who get to, to speak about what has happened for the first time. In the first century, the testimony of women would hardly even have been considered valid. Yet here they are, hearing the news first, and Jesus appears to them first. Before they even make it to the disciples' hiding place, uh, Jesus stops them in their tracks. Greetings, I mean, come on, say something like, I'm right here, just be warned. I don't know, anything but greetings, exclamation point, because I think I would have just passed out. Which they do, they just fall at his feet. They are so overwhelmed with devotion, they start to worship him. And Jesus tells them, you know, you got to keep going because you got to tell my brothers to meet me at Galilee. Now notice here, do you, do you see how he could have just gone with them? And they could have just encountered the rest of the group together. But do you see how Jesus validates their testimony by having them go ahead of him? They are more than capable to declare, to preach, and to proclaim that Jesus is alive. And they do. Also, a king riding back to a city victorious, having won a battle, would send their royal court out ahead to announce that they have been victorious. And so those women are his royal court. And they go and they announce Jesus is alive. And sure enough, he shows up proving in person the victory over death with the scars to prove it. And he's there with those disciples. Jesus is anointed as a king. Jesus is buried as a king. But Jesus returns as a victorious king. So how, how do we see these people respond to Jesus? Some have an agenda for Jesus. Some are confused and afraid. And some show their deep devotion. But what do all these people have in common? No matter how they respond, what do they all have in common? What they have in common is that Jesus gave up his life for them. This is what blows my mind. 
Those who encounter Jesus, those who are firsthand witnesses of this first holy week, this defining moment in history, they respond in all these different ways, but Jesus died for them all. Jesus takes on the brokenness and the sin of the world, of our lives, of their lives. He takes to the cross the failures, the pride, the suffering, the sin, the pain of the entire world, even those who see it all go down and are still confused and afraid, even those who are right there and they have an agenda to scheme his very death. He gives up everything for them because of his love. We see some humans choose to give devotion to the king. But Jesus, Jesus is the devoted one. Jesus is the devoted one. Jesus is, is kingship redefined. No greater devotion has been shown to you. No greater devotion has been shown to me than by the God of the universe choosing to divest of his power, even to the point of death, all because of love. There is no other honor that's been given. No other devotion. And when we let Jesus reign in our lives as our leader and our king, it changes our reality. When we decide to take down from the throne the other things that have been reigning over our life, it changes our reality. And when Jesus came back to life, he did it to offer new life to each one of us, to offer life to the full now and eternal life with him forever. He offers us so much. He offers us purpose and mission and community and family. He offers us a chance to be forgiven, to be set free from what holds us back, to be set free from shame. Boy, do we all need this. And all he wants from us is our very lives, our devotion. How will we respond? How will you respond? The confused, the devoted, those with an agenda. Many of us have encountered people like this of all three, right? Many of us have been all three of these people and responding in these different ways in different times in our life. There are always going to be people who have an agenda for Jesus. We might as well just get used to that at this point, right? We may have been those people at times, if we're honest. It's nothing new that, that Jesus has been used for political agendas and power schemes. I mean, this is the original story. From the day he was born until the last breath, he has been used for political agendas and power schemes. Over the years, Jesus has been made into like the literal poster boy for campaigns of violence, for get-rich schemes and gospels, Right? Agendas that those have had for Jesus have been used to take people's homes, to take people's freedoms, to take people's very lives. Agendas some have had for Jesus have shut down people and heaped shame on them instead of relieving it from them. Many have had an agenda for Jesus that has crafted Jesus into their own image instead of into this image of kingship redefined, crossing cultures, crossing the barriers that so many humans put up, expanding across difference to reach the least and the lost and the lonely. No one with their Jesus agendas can determine your response to King Jesus. They don't get to decide that. Even pastors like me, so tempted to think we've got it all right all the time. <laughs> we can't answer the question for you that Jesus asks in Matthew, who do you say that I am? No one else can answer that for you. And I, I am deeply sorry for the ways in which the pain and suffering and trauma that has faced so many people because of these Jesus agendas, there is no excuse. It has caused pain and suffering. It's caused loss of trust, even loss of faith. No one gets to answer who Jesus is for you except for you. You can invite other people you trust into that quest, but it is your decision how you respond to that. I'm sorry if somebody made, it think, made you think it wasn't your own decision. And for those of us who know 
if we're honest, that there's been times we've had an agenda for Jesus in our own lives or the lives of other people, we get a chance to repent. We get a chance to receive God's mercy. We get a chance to be people who live into forgiveness because King Jesus gave it all even for us. How about the people who have responded with confusion and fear in their life? I see that around all the time, right? In our world today, fear and anxiety is always at arm's length. It's always near. Arm's length or closer. When we think about faith, when we try to reconcile everything that's happening in the world and the things that we experience, all the brokenness and suffering, it can be confusing, it can be discouraging. And as we often talk about here at Mill City, God moves close to the brokenhearted. Jesus moves towards those who are suffering, not away. Jesus moves towards those who are confused and questioning and doubting, not away. And we want to be people that move towards each other too. In this story, you see people who are confused, who are unsure, who are terrified, who run away and hide. And at the end of the day, even if they abandon Jesus, Jesus hasn't abandoned them. That's not what happens. He still goes to the cross for them. And so if this Easter is hitting you in a season of confusion or doubt or suffering or pain, Jesus moves towards you. You are not alone. And I pray and believe that there's people who can move towards you in that time as well. Jesus' resurrection was the most defining and world-changing moment in history. And how we choose to, dis- to respond to that will define the rest of our lives. And even if we've bailed on Jesus in the past, even if we have shut Jesus out or ran in the opposite direction, we still have another chance to respond to King Jesus. We never run out of those chances. We have a chance to take down, yet again, for me it's regularly, down from the throne of my life the things that are reigning, that have power and control, that often lead to misery, and take them off the throne and put King Jesus back upon the throne to reign in our life. When we let God reign in our lives, it changes reality. Jesus accomplished so much on the cross. Let me, sorry if this is a theological nerd moment, but just look at what I wrote down, okay? This is how much Jesus accomplished on the cross. He conquered death so that we could have eternal life. He took on brokenness and sin so that we could live forgiven right now. He, he was victorious over evil so that we can live in freedom. He removed the barrier between us and God so we can be in loving relationship with God. He removed the barriers between humans so we can live as reconciled, selfless siblings. And Jesus inaugurated his kingdom so we can join in his restorative work of justice and mercy in this world. That is our king. He did all that motivated by love for us. Jesus accomplished all this and still said, it's your choice. It's not something I'm going to force. You get to choose if I'm your king, if I will be on the throne of your life. You get to choose to be in relationship with me. This is not forced, to let him reign as our savior and leader. But let me tell you this. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, you are covered in grace and mercy. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, there is purpose and meaning in a life joining in what God is doing in the world. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, there is freedom from sin and freedom from shame. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, there is victory over evil. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, there is hope and there is forgiveness. And this Easter, as we celebrate all that King Jesus has done for us, will we let it be a day that we usher King Jesus back on the throne of our lives? Will we lay down our burdens? Will we lay down our fear? Will we lay down our pride at the foot of his throne? we lay down these things? Will we let the sun of suffering into our own suffering and bring healing? 
the healing we so desperately need? And will we confess and be forgiven and live lives set free? And will we join King Jesus as he right now, his kingdom comes in our midst and he makes the wrong things right? I'm going to have the band come up. And I just want to say clearly, if, if you're someone here who has never given your life to Jesus, I know that's a big decision and it, and it feels daunting. And if it's something that you're considering, let me just encourage you, it will change your life. It will change your life for the better. If you're in a place that you know you need just a turning point, like maybe like a new defining moment in your relationship with Jesus, let me encourage you, Jesus never runs out of patience for our return. He's always ready. Letting God's love into your life fully Receiving God's forgiveness and, and being people who commit to follow Jesus as the leader of your life is the most life-defining decision that you can make. And we're going to have members of our prayer team that are going to be here on the walls that will be just available to pray for anything. We would love to pray for you this Easter. If you want to talk about and have prayer for how to put Jesus on the throne of your life, let us talk about that. If you need healing, whatever you need prayer for, let us do that. If you want to consider being baptized in a couple of weeks to declare that Jesus is your leader and Savior, will you let us just hear about that and we can talk to you about that? Every one of us gets a chance to respond to King Jesus. Jesus' resurrection was the defining moment that changed the world and how we respond will define the rest of our lives.